Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1116, with a release and air date of Saturday, July 18th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1116 of This Week in Amateur Radio. A proposed new shortwave broadcast station in Illinois is raising a lot of concern. We will have the details. The so-called radio war between Russia and the Ukraine seems to be escalating on the low bands. There are several virtual ham fests coming up in the weeks ahead, and we will tell you all about them. The FCC announces the closing of its filing window at its headquarters facility in Washington, D.C., in preparation to move. Field Day 2020 is going down as one for the record books. Several DXCC entities are in play as the U.S. rejects China's significant South China Sea claims. And in this day and age of high technology, is WWV still relevant? We will take a look at this and a lot more on today's edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment, along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about the public beta release of Apple's new iOS 14 operating system and some related security issues. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, will talk about homebrewing in the 21st century. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a look at the state of amateur radio in the year 1962. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about the correct type of climbing belt to use while working on your tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, looking over the 787 Cloverleaf, I'm George W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave Studios, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our radio studios high atop the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where the pickles are coming in fast and furious, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in central New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF in Cortlandville. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where we're testing the true definition of heat this week, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week, 
There's a plan in the works to build a new international shortwave radio station in Illinois, one that would use the Digital Radio Mondial Modulation System. But now several prominent members of the U.S. shortwave community are asking the Federal Communications Commission to take a closer look first. Parable Broadcasting Company in April asked the FCC to allow it to build the station in Batavia, Illinois, west of Chicago, using the call sign WPBC. It wants to offer broadcasting and data services. Specifically, Parable wrote that the station would serve the areas of Europe that may be authorized by the Commission. The planned broadcast content includes religious and educational programming, as well as data content provided by third parties. It added that it wanted to take advantage of the recent push by the National Association of Shortwave Broadcasters to develop and provide content for the growing digital radio mondial market. Now three individuals, collectively called the high-frequency parties, filed an informal objection. It's that wording about data content that concerns them. Bennett Z. Cobb, Kim Andrew Elliott, and Christopher D. Rumbaugh said in their filing that international broadcast stations in the U.S. are intended to be received directly by the general public in foreign countries. Now, they told the FCC that it is impossible to tell from the parable application whether all of the data services and data provided by third parties will qualify. Elliot is a former Voice of America employee who produces the program Shortwave Radiogram and is active on Twitter. Rumbaugh publishes the drmna.info website. Cobb has held various roles in radio and telecommunications, including launching a telecom newsletter and writing books about spectrum allocations. He currently is a government contractor. The three have filed joint comments to the FCC before. They wrote to the Commission, Various elements of the application and its geographical location suggest that the station will be engaged in the provision of point-to-point -point data services for hire, a common carrier or private carrier of messages not intended for direct reception by the general public and not to be received directly by the general public in foreign countries. Nothing in the rules allows a non-broadcast service, including ancillary or auxiliary services they continued. The applicant proposes to use the Digital Radio Mondial standard. All data messages from this station must be in a form readily decoded by ordinary DRM receivers and rendered as publicly accessible content without encryption or obscuration of their purpose or meaning. While Section 73.758 authorizes data casting to stations using DRM, it does not allow any form of data casting that is not also broadcasting. They said they're definitely not against international data broadcasts or to DRM. Our members pioneered such services at The Voice of America and have operated DRM promotional websites recognized by the DRM consortium for more than a decade. But, they said, someone wishing to conduct commercial HF point-to-point -point messaging for third parties should do so in a service dedicated to that function. If none exists, they should petition the FCC for one. While the FCC has authorized international data stations experimentally, 
those were never conceived to engage in revenue operations indefinitely as an alternative to regular spectrum allocations and transparent public license assignment procedures. In a separate email to Radio World, Cobb noted recent news coverage of shortwave applications for private data communication services such as instant stock trading. Cobb emphasized that the objectors have no reason to think Parable is associated with those particular projects. But regardless of audio programs that Parable may transmit, the three told the FCC that licensing a point-to-point message facility this way would be an impermissible excursion around formalizing an international private data service or updating existing rules to accommodate it. So they say the Commission FCC should require Parable to certify that no non-public, non-broadcast, non-disclosed, encrypted, confidential, or clandestine data messages shall be sent over the proposed station. They added that the FCC needs to update its Part 73F rules, some dating from the 1930s and now without any articulable public interest basis. These include excessive minimum required power level and a prohibition on domestic service. Rule changes might embrace data communications under an expanded scope of service. Radio World invited comment from Parable via its attorney Donna Belliger of Fish and Richardson. She replied in an email, We have just received the informal objection and require time to review it. However, Parable Broadcasting Company proposes to provide valuable cultural and educational content overseas as intended by the FCC for international broadcast stations. Parable's applications complies with FCC rules in all aspects. Parable's facility would operate on the 5.9 and 15.8 MHz international shortwave bands with 15 kilowatts power. Two 10-kilowatt amplifier systems transmitters, main and standby, would feed 550 feet of 5-inch ComScope pressurized coax to a super-high-gain TCI log periodic antenna system. The latter would consist of three towers, including two at 184 feet, with antenna power gain of 18.0 dBi, which the application notes is a multiplier of 63.1. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The so-called radio war taking place between Russia and the Ukraine appears to be escalating. The most recent newsletter of the International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Monitoring System reports that what's being called the Russian-Ukrainian radio war continues apace. The Russian-Ukrainian radio war remained on a high escalation level during the past few weeks. International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 Monitoring System Coordinator Pete Jost, HB9CET, said, Almost every day... We heard the massive, spiteful, and provocative broadcasts. During June, they used more frequencies than before, affecting our bands very hard. It is a great annoyance and a big shame. 
Joss points out that the IARU monitoring system has little opportunity to stop the on-the-air conflict. Only national authorities can hopefully do something against international complaints, he said. It is very important and very helpful that many other IARU member societies also observe these frequencies and make complaints to their regulators. We have to coordinate this well within IARU and act together. This is the only way we have a certain power. Last month, Joss reported that the radio war had raged for years at 7055 kilohertz lower sideband as well as on 7050 or 7060 kilohertz. Joss also reported continued daily transmissions from the Russian over-the-horizon radar known as container operating on the 40 and 20 meter amateur bands and elsewhere. The Chinese 5 has been reported on 20 meters from 14246 to 14256 kilohertz. Just a reminder, there are two virtual ham expos coming up fast on the calendar. As we reported last week, the QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo will be held on the 8th and 9th of August, and U.S. hams who register by July 24th will be eligible for early bird prizes. This free 48-hour event was organized by the QSO Today podcast, hosted weekly by Eric Guth for Z1UG. Details and free registration are available at QSOTodayHamExpo.com. For those who can't wait until August, a virtual ham fest and a DX Academy will also be held on Saturday, July 25th, hosted by DX Engineering. Hamfest speakers will touch on such topics as public service, youth and amateur radio and satellites. The DX Academy will be held in the afternoon and will include a discussion of the recent de-expedition to Pitcairn Island. Details are available about this free event on the DX Engineering website. The FCC permanently closed its filing location at FCC Headquarters Open Window Counter at 445 12th Street Southwest, room TWA325, Washington, D.C., effective on July 7th. This changes for security measures and in anticipation of the upcoming FCC Headquarters move. Hand-carried documents will no longer be accepted at the FCC Headquarters. After pandemic restrictions are lifted, 9050 Junction Drive, Annapolis Junction, Maryland, will be the only location where hand-carried documents for the FCC will be accepted. The filing window for hand-carried documents will be open from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. These changes are being made to enhance security measures and in conjunction with the Commission's upcoming relocation to a new headquarters building located at 45 L Street Northeast in Washington, D.C., which is scheduled to occur later this year, the FCC said in announcing the change. ARRL Contest Program Manager Paul Burke, N1SFE, reported that ARRL has received more than 8,700 online field day entries by midweek, and paper-only entries have started arriving too. As many participants chose to operate from home this year, and given the 2020 rules waivers, we have seen a tremendous increase in entries over last year's event, Burke said. Most of the entries received have been through the online web app, and headquarters staffers have begun processing the paper entries this week. The 2020 waivers allowed individual club members to attribute their scores to their clubs. Participants who submitted entries online are encouraged to check the field day entries received page to verify that their entries are marked as complete and that the club name entered is correct. 
Entries with a status of pending are incomplete entries that are missing one or more items and these need to be completed for an official entry. Share your stories and photos using the ARRL soapbox or via social media, such as on the ARRL Field Day Facebook group. To radio amateurs, Scarborough Reef or the Spratly Islands are DX locations occasionally activated to provide needy DXers with a new location. Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reports from League Headquarters with more details on this DX story. The Spratleys are number 53 on the Club Log DXCC Most Wanted list, but Scarborough Reef, a much more difficult piece of real estate to access, is number 4. These South China Sea islands are once again in the news, though, as the U.S. has begun putting heat on China by rejecting nearly all of its significant land claims in the region. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said this week that the U.S. now regards virtually all Chinese maritime claims outside of its international recognized waters to be illegitimate. A 2016 ruling from an international tribunal discounted China's claims with respect to Scarborough Reef and the Spratleys, but it did not rule on the matter of sovereignty. In addition to China's claim, Malaysia, Taiwan, Vietnam, and the Philippines have asserted ownership of the Spratleys, and Scarborough Reef is claimed by China, the Philippines, and Taiwan. The Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague ruled in favor of the Philippines in a dispute with China over Scarborough Reef. The tribunal said that although navigators and fishermen from China and other states have historically made use of the South China Sea Islands, there's no evidence that China has historically exercised exclusive control over the waters or resources. The world will not allow Beijing to treat the South China Sea as its maritime empire, Pompeo said. America stands with our Southeast Asian allies and partners in protecting their sovereign rights to offshore resources consistent with their rights and obligations under international law. We stand with the international community in defense of freedom of the seas and respect for sovereignty and reject any push to impose might makes right in the South China Sea or the wider region. The tribunal said China had violated the Philippines' sovereign rights and had caused severe harm to the coastal reef environment by building artificial islands and an airstrip. In 2015, a Chinese naval vessel harassed a Philippines Air Force patrol flight in the Spratleys. One news account had reported by firing an illumination round. The incident postponed a Philippine Navy flight that was to evacuate an ailing participant of the then-just-ended DXOP de-expedition. The Chinese Navy has also warned off private aircraft. DXOP was issued by the Philippines. Last week, China complained about the U.S. conducting joint exercises with two U.S. aircraft carrier groups in the region. A May 2070 expedition to Scarborough Reef used the call sign BS-7H, granted by China. The expedition team members operated from wooden platforms mounted atop each of the reef's four rocks that were exposed during high tide. The ARRL Board of Directors voted in 1996 to add Scarborough Reef to the ARRL DXCC list. In Ireland, amateurs are celebrating the completion of the long-awaited network of DMR radio repeaters. The fourth and final repeater of the Galway Digital Radio Group's DMR network has been installed and the network is now complete. The repeater EI7LRD became active on Saturday, July 11th, allowing the repeater group to realize its goal to provide DMR repeater coverage for most of the county of Galway and some areas of nearby counties. 
According to Steve Wright, EI5DD, the coverage is designed to be uninterrupted because of four repeaters are set up to permit roaming, which allows for as much as continuous connection as possible when switching between repeaters. DMR has been growing in popularity throughout Ireland in recent years. Steve said he believed that probably the Galway area now likely has Ireland's best digital radio facilities. The four-repeater network is supplemented by a two-meter multi-mode gateway for DMR, D-Star, and Fusion, as well as a two-meter C4FM Wires X Galaxy gateway serving Galway City. There's also a two-meter Yesu Fusion repeater with Wires X in the southeast of County Galway and a 70-centimeter D-Star repeater covering Galway City. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Last Thursday, July 9th, an aircraft departing from Santiago de Chile, performing an air ambulance service to pick up a patient on Easter Island, lost communication at more than 1,000 nautical miles of the continent with its control tower, so the pilot attended the frequency of the Peruvian relief chain at 7,100 kilohertz. Although the Peruvian relief chain exercise had ended a few minutes earlier, colleagues Guillermo OA4DTU, who was operating the chain, and Giancarlo, OA4DSN, remained on the wheel, so the pilot of the aircraft was able to contact Guillermo. In this way, communication was established with the aircraft, who detailed its delicate situation, given an apparent failure in its satellite communication equipment, so it requested support to communicate by telephone with Control Ocean Air, a service of the Directorate General of Aeronautics of Chile that guards through that airspace of 32 million square kilometers in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Chile. This is how Ocean Control answers William's call, signaling him his surprise and relief from communication, since they were indeed in an alert situation for the loss of contact with the aircraft, and that effectively the HF remote equipment of the Easter Island Tower was inoperative at the time, so they were not able to communicate by that route. In this way, about 10 phone calls were made with this service, indicating the different positions and schedules of its route, in addition to some indications for pilots and air control respectively. Other OA colleagues were attentive and ready to take action if necessary, accompanying William in contact and the aircraft until he knew that it would arrive at its destination. Thus, at approximately 4.30 UTC, the aircraft reports that it has managed to make contact via VHF with the Easter Island Control Tower, confirming descent and landing instructions on the island. The joy and satisfaction of all those who were on the frequency was absolute, even more so since minutes after losing contact by HF, the pilot communicated by telephone with Guillermo, sending him his greetings, thanks, and a photograph of the aircraft stationed on the Mataveri runway, where that minute it was raining and waiting for a patient to be transferred to Santiago de Chile. 
Finally, the accompaniment of the aircraft lasted about three hours, which was permanent from the first contact until its arrival at the destination, with the thanks also of the Ocean Air Control Service to Guillermo and the Peruvian chain of relief. This action reaffirms the role that radio amateurs play in situations of risk or emergencies. The Radio Club of America has announced its 2020 award recipients and fellows, several of whom are radio amateurs. Recipients and fellows will be celebrated at RCA's 111th Banquet and Awards presentation on Friday, November 20th in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Receiving the Barry Goldwater Award, Bob Bruninga, WB4APR, for unique contributions to the field of amateur radio. Edgar F. Johnson Pioneer Citation Award, Tokuzo Inoue, JA3FA, for noteworthy contributions to the success of the radio industry. The Jack Popley Award, John Shadler, for important and long-term contributions to the field of radio broadcasting. The J. Kitchen Leadership Award, Michael T. N. Fitch, in recognition of achievement of a high level of success leading a wireless association. The Ralph Batcher Memorial Award, Eric P. Wenis, Ph.D., for significant work in preserving the history of radio and electronic communications. RCA President's Award, Ron Jakubowski, K2RJ, for service and dedication to the Radio Club of America. RCA Special Services Award, Ernie Blair, WA4BPS, to recognize an RCA member who has performed significant work to advance the goals and objectives of the Radio Club of America. The Sarnoff Citation, Robert Rouleau, VE2P, and Norman Pearl, VE2BQS, for exceptional contributions of a technical or non-technical nature to the advancement of electronic communications. U.S. Navy Captain George P. McGinnis Memorial Award, CTRCM John A. Gus Gustafsson, USN Retired, for service and dedication to the advancement and preservation of U.S. Naval Cryptology, as nominated by the U.S. Naval Cryptologic Veterans Association. The Vivian Carr Award, Emily Calandrelli, KD8PKR, in recognition of an outstanding woman's achievements in the wireless industry. A complete listing of RCA awards and previous recipients is on the RCA website. Indonesia's International Amateur Radio Union Member Society, O-R-A-R-I, and the National Institute of Aeronautics and Space of Indonesia have activated the IO-86 Amateur Radio Satellite to facilitate emergency communications in the South Sulawesi province in the wake of flooding on July 13. The disaster has affected nearly 5,000 families, according to Indonesia's National Disaster Management Authority. Heavy rains earlier this week swelled the rivers and sent floodwaters, mud and debris across roads and into thousands of homes, submerging many of them. IARU Region 3 Disaster Communication Coordinator Dani Halim, YB2JTV, reports an emergency post was established near the scene of the flooding. Some traffic is being handled on HF, and amateur radios in Region 3 are asked to keep 7.110 MHz free for emergency communication. Repairs to the power grid are underway. Local emergency managers and the Indonesian Red Cross have conducted a quick assessment in the field. 
The provincial road is covered in mud, preventing access to the main command post and the affected location. As of July 15th, at least 16 people have died and 46 other individuals are missing. ORARI local Surakau participated in activating the Masamba Flash Flood Disaster Relief Program and proceeded directly to the disaster site. Carrying out communication support at the disaster site, Oari local Surakau with Andy Batarutin, WC8BR, who had the first headed for the site, and Orari local Luwu Utara were establishing emergency communication. Registration for this year's popular International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend appear to have been largely unaffected by the current pandemic. Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reports from League Headquarters with more details. The event will take place this year over the August 22nd, 23rd weekend. By mid-July, more than 200 entries have been received, and more than 400 are expected to have signed up by the event weekend. New to this year's event is Corsica at Far de Alistro, which for event purposes carries the French number FR0030. Two lighthouses in Ghana will be on the air for the first time, as well as Buck Island Lighthouse in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Germany is well in the lead with 54 entries, followed by Australia with 29 entries and the U.S. with 27 entries. This event is designed as a fun weekend to encourage exposure to amateur radio and lighthouses to the visiting public. An International Lighthouse Lightship Weekend stresses contact should be more than just an exchange of signal reports. All participants are urged to observe local COVID safety guidelines. The Radio Amateur Society of Australia is pleased to announce a new fully electronic edition of their QTC magazine. This new format is best viewed on tablets or larger monitors. By using your browser, you get the magazine's look and feel, embedded videos, and dynamic hotlinks, which allow you to click through to external websites. If you prefer, you can still create a PDF version. When you view the digital magazine, simply print a copy to a PDF file on your computer. If you'd like to access QTC magazines, just go to qtcmag.com. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. The time is now 2 a.m. in Bakaba, Belgian Congo, the home of the Jungle Telegraph. We'd like to say hello to Ungat Unga Oomp and Mrs. Oomp and all the boys up at the transmitter. I hope you had a good fourth. Did you have a good fourth? Good. Good. Missed you. Anything, anything interesting happen? In the world of tech, of course, there's always interesting things happening. Always. We got the uh, beta, uh, public beta, the ones you could install, but I don't recommend you do unless you're very adventurous for the new iOS and iPadOS, the 14. Of course, I'm adventurous, so I install it. I like it. And it seems like it's reliable. I mean, you know, the the rule is you should never install beta versions of software on... um, on anything that you need, <laughs> that you need to use, because you're 
you could regret it. But uh, I like, you know, I like the widget uh, thing. So I'm a widget user from Android, and uh, the fact that we can we got widgets now is uh, is really cool. I think. Uh, so there's some nice features. You know, it's going to take a little getting used to. But uh, you know, what's interesting is that the privacy settings on the new version of iOS are a lot stronger, and uh, that's caused some conniptions. Because among other things, uh, the new iOS will warn you. The little thing will slide down uh, if another program, a program you're not using, is looking, is sniffing your key, your uh, clipboard. <laughs> and uh, programs like TikTok, for instance, were capturing every keystroke through the clipboard, everything that you were typing. What? There were <laughs> that doesn't seem like a nice thing to do, even if you're not using TikTok, understand, right? That's the problem. If you're using TikTok, they have to see what the keyboard's doing. But what if you just have it installed on your phone and it's still doing that? Turns out a lot of app applications did that. Microsoft's LinkedIn application did that. Mm. Now, LinkedIn's response was, that was a bug. Uh, we're fixing that right now. And I believe them because you wouldn't, you know, this is a big company. You're not going to, Microsoft's not going to take a chance that somebody's going to, you know, they're not going to take a chance to start sniffing on stuff. And then somebody discovers it and that the damage to reputation alone. I mean, you know, that's not, they're not going to do that on purpose. So they said it's a bug. They said it's a bug. Last week, a fellow discovered the LinkedIn app was copying the contents of their clipboard after every keystroke. LinkedIn said it's a bug. They said the company had traced the bug to, quote, a code path. This is going to be an interesting statement because either they're trying to baffle us with, you know, programmer talk. Or it really will make sense. A code path that only does an equality check clipboard contents in the currently typed content in a text box. Okay. Besides the fact that that makes no sense in English. <laughs> in Codeese, what he's, I think, saying is it's checking to see if what you typed matches what's on the clipboard. Why would it be doing that? Well, but we don't store or transmit the clipboard contents. We're just checking. Why would you do that? That's a weird thing. <laughs> a thing we would never have known about if iOS 14 hadn't started notifying people. There's something looking at your clipboard there. TikTok uh, says it'll stop doing it. LinkedIn says a bug. We're going to fix it. I, you know, honestly, I believe LinkedIn. 56 apps, top apps, big apps, were reading the contents of a clipboard. My, you know, knowing a little bit about how software works, my guess is there was some, you know, one of the things, one of the dirty little secrets of software development is why write it if you can just uh, steal it, <laughs> if you can borrow it? So what happens a lot in uh, software development, it's kind of an interesting thing, is uh, developers say, oh, I need to you know, write a login page or something. And instead of sitting down and just doing it from scratch, they do a Google search. They often end up on a site called Stack Exchange, but there are a number of other sites like this, where somebody has said, here's how you do it. Oh, that was nice of them. So they copy and paste it. They might look at it and say, yeah, that looks about right. <laughs> so they copy and paste it and they're done. Look, saved a lot of time. Boss is going to love me for that. I just love that. It's not plagiarism. No, in fact, that's really how development often works. You don't you don't write anything from scratch that you could avoid writing from scratch. You you borrow from yourself. You borrow from others. Simple stuff. You could have written it. I could have written that. I just didn't, you know, it would have taken me an hour. Now I just got copy and pasted from Stack Exchange. Everything's good. And that's my guess that that's what happened. 
is that this is code that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you check every time somebody typed something and see if it's on the keyboard? I mean, the clipboard. I don't know why you would do that. I can't even think. I'm racking my brain. Maybe you can. There's no reason to do that. So it's just probably it was in the bad code. It wasn't good code. The bad code they pasted. These 56 apps pasted. And uh, whoops. I guess we're going to have to fix that. It's embarrassing. Now LinkedIn's being sued. A guy named Adam Bauer filed a lawsuit in San Francisco federal court saying, hey, you're sp- that's private. It's private. What's on my clipboard? Turns out because, and actually, it is a bigger problem because the way Apple works, if you copy something to your clipboard on your Mac or your iPad, it's then visible on your iPhone, which means it's then visible to LinkedIn or whatever other applications snooping. Ooh. So it's a class action lawsuit. It's a violation of California's new privacy law. You know, that just went into effect on July 1st. So 10 days, it took them 10 days before the first lawsuit. LinkedIn hasn't said anything. They said they did it unintentionally. And I believe that. There's no reason for a big company like LinkedIn to do that. TikTok, maybe, you know, who knows what TikTok's up to. TikTok's being banned right and left from a lot of companies because they're worried it's a Chinese company that makes it bite dance, and they're worried that it's just like a little putting a little Chinese spyware on your phone. I would, I'd be more, I'd, exp- but it's not just it's it's LinkedIn, it's TikTok, AccuWeather, AliExpress, another Chinese shopping app, very popular. Fifty six apps in all, and, the, and these are top apps. I bet you it's millions if you go, you know, through all of the apps. But we'll see more and more because now it's a public beta. A lot of people can install iOS fourteen. I have to say, I haven't yet found it. I installed it a couple of days ago. I haven't yet seen it, that behavior on any of the apps I use. There's another good reason. I say this all the time. Only install stuff you really need. And only install stuff from reliable sources. Don't, don't, be, don't be a tourist. Don't be an app tourist. Oh, let's see what this does. Don't be downloading and installing stuff you don't need. Chances are good you're going to run into something you don't want to run into. Whether it's intentional or not. And I bet you anything. Time will tell. I don't know. This lawsuit's going to be thrown out, I would expect. But who knows? You don't know. They'd have to prove intent, I would imagine. That it's it's not just, oh, whoops. We copied and pasted something. We didn't really understand what it did. It's going to be more like that, I think. There's no reason why Microsoft or LinkedIn would want to snoop on your clipboard. Again, I don't. TikTok, maybe. I wouldn't put it past them. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Where were you in 62? Let's take a snapshot of amateur radio over 45 years ago. In January 1962, there was one word on the lips of every amateur, Oscar. 
No, I'm not talking about the Academy Award, but rather orbital satellite carrying amateur radio. Oscar One was launched on December 12, 1961. By today's standards, it was extremely simple. A one cubic foot package containing a two transistor, 140 milliwatt crystal controlled CW transmitter sending high on 144.98 megacycles. The beacon lasted only three weeks, long enough for thousands of hams to hear it. Amateur radio was now in the space age. Congratulations came in from Vice President Lyndon Johnson and Mrs. Lee DeForest, the widow of the famous inventor. Oscar I was followed in June 1962 by Oscar II. Other notable 1962 space activities included John Glenn's first flight in February and the launching of Telstar, the first communication satellite in the summer. The amateur radio population hit two milestones in 1962. The number of hams passed the 250,000 mark by the end of the year and membership in the American Radio Relay League hit 100,000. With the increase in the amateur census, the FCC was running out of WA prefix call signs in the second and sixth call areas. Soon, WB call signs would appear. As for the ARRL, it was running out of space. The old building in West Hartford was filled to the rafters, so the ARRL proposed a new headquarters at the site of W1AW, 225 Main Street, Newington, Connecticut. The new building would cover 25,000 square feet versus 14,000 square feet for the West Hartford location. To finance the $250,000 cost, the ARRL started the building fund. They hoped to be in the new headquarters by 1963. On May 11, 1962, Herbert Hoover Jr., W6ZH, was elected president of the ARRL. Son of Herbert Hoover, the former president and secretary of commerce, W6ZH was famous in his own right as an inventor, corporate president, and engineer. Licensed since 1915, he was active on all bands from 160 through 2 meters. In regards to licenses, there was good news and bad news. The FCC decided in 1962 that an individual seeking an amateur or CB license no longer needed to have the application notarized. No longer would you solemnly stand before a notary public, right hand raised, and swear that the application was accurate and complete to the best of your knowledge. Given the sorry state of some CB and ham frequencies, I, as a notary, believe this requirement should be brought back. The bad news from the FCC? License fees. Public comment was solicited on the FCC proposal to institute license fees of between $5 and $10. The ARRL was strongly opposed to the idea. For technicians, 1962 was not a good year. A proposal to amend Part 12 to allow technicians on 10 meters was denied by the FCC. The FCC strongly reinforced their policy that the purpose of this license was experimentation, not communication. The license was not designated for communication service and was not to be regarded as a stepping stone between the novice and general classes. The ARRL supported the FCC decision. There was one bit of good news for technicians, a new magazine called VHF Horizons. The focus of this publication was ham radio above 50 megacycles 
and for the first time in the amateur community, there were editorials in a national magazine supporting technicians as full-fledged hams. Unfortunately, after only two years, VHF Horizons ceased publication. In technical areas, single sideband was passing AM as the favored voice mode. Transistors now existed that could handle 2 watts or more above 50 megacycles. As a result, many all-transistor 6-meter portable units were described in the pages of QST. For those who preferred kits or factory-built equipment over homebrewing, there were lots of choices. Heathkit had the Pawnee and the Shawnee, 2- and 6-meter transceiver kits. These were AMCW mobile units which used 15 tubes and a vibrator power supply. Clegg and Gonset also had many 2 and 6 meter rigs, including the Clegg Zeus, a 6 and 2 meter transmitter for $675. Polytronics introduced the Polycom 62, a dual band 6 and 2 meter transceiver for $379.50. For the HF operator, Johnson had a full Viking line, including the Invader, a 200-watt CW sideband AM transmitter for $619.50, the Ranger, a 75-watt CW 65-watt AM transmitter for $249.50, and the Adventurer, a 50-watt CW crystal control transmitter for only $54.95. Why don't you match your Viking transmitter with a Hammerlin receiver? Try the HQ-180 for $429 or the HQ-170 for $379. By the way, Radio Shack carries the full line of Hammerlin equipment at their eight stores coast to coast. Note that these are 1962 prices. Multiply them by five to get today's equivalent. Adjusted for inflation, today's radios are three times cheaper than those of the 50s and 60s. CB radio was booming in 1962. There were more CBers than hams, and an ugly rumor started that the FCC was going to give 10 meters to the CB crowd. The FCC put out an announcement that the rumor was 100% false. CB radios were everywhere, even in the pages of QST, tucked away in the full-page ads from Ico and Lafayette. The national calling and emergency frequencies in 1962 were 3.55, 7.1, 14.05, 21.05, and 28.1 megacycles for CW, and 3.875, 7.25, 14.75, twenty nine point six four fifty point five five and one forty five point three five megacycles for phone and finally Conrad was still alive at the beginning of nineteen sixty two every ham had a monitor six forty or twelve forty kilocycles while on the air however the basis for Conrad was becoming obsolete and on july thirteenth nineteen sixty two Conrad ended it was replaced by the emergency broadcast system. In our next installment, we are going to look at Conrad and the role it played in the lives of every amateur, CBer, and U.S. citizen. So until then, keep monitoring 640 and 1240 kilocycles, and remember to duck and cover. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. 
We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, July 17th. We're still in the depths of a solar minimum, but it looks like the sun might slowly be starting to awaken. This week we have a tiny spot in the sun's southern hemisphere, what they're calling a proto-sunspot, and it's expected to grow in the coming days. The activity won't help much on the HF bands, but it is something. On VHF and UHF, 6 meters is still throwing out fireworks with some big transoceanic openings. On 2 meters and up, there are major openings taking place in East Texas, northern Louisiana, and almost the entire state of Arkansas. This activity is expected to slide into Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky in the week to come. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. It is that time of the year. AMSAT is holding their annual Board of Directors elections. The ballots are starting to be received. If you are an AMSAT member, please take the time to cast your vote. The new 2020 Getting Started with Amateur Satellites is available at the AMSAT online store in PDF format. If you are new to satellites or you've been away for a while, this book should help you learn the ins and outs of most of the current satellites should you need further assistance, feel free to join the AMSAT BB at AMSAT.org and click on Services to ask your questions. If you're looking for Hawaii on the satellites, NH7WN is on AO7 most days. Reach out to him for a SCED. In the past couple of weeks since we announced the new AMSAT Gridmaster Award for working all 488 continental United States grids on satellite, we have issued two awards. They went to Drew, KO4MA, and Kevin, N4UFO. Congratulations to both. It is not an easy task to accomplish on satellite. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. Germany's amateur satellite organization, AMSAT-DL, has submitted a comprehensive proposal to the European Space Agency for its lunar amateur radio transponder lunar lander, a communications platform on the large European lander to support communication and payload experiments. For more details on this story, we go to League Headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. AMSAT DL's Peter Guzlo, DB2OS, and Matthias Bopp, DD1US, say that a Lunart would support direct communication with Earth via amateur radio, support university and student payloads, and offer direct access to their experiments and expand the reach of radio science. It could also provide backup communication capability and capacity during an emergency or when the ESA network is busy. The comprehensive radio platform would use the European frequency protocol of 2.4 GHz up and 10.45 GHz down that was pioneered in the QO100 satellite, the first geosynchronous amateur radio payload. The platform would also include a VHF-UHF transponder. AMSAT-DL would develop and build the necessary hardware and software, 
and provide ground station support via the 20-meter dish at AMSAT DL headquarters in Germany. They envision developing a smaller ground station with an approximately 1-meter dish to support groups, including schools and universities. Low-powered beacons would transmit on various frequencies from VHF through SHF. The transponder would also be an ideal platform to develop new transmission schemes with novel modulation and coding techniques optimized for long-distance communications with the corresponding high-latency AMSAT DL said. This would provide essential knowledge in preparation of a future Mars mission. In addition, Lunart could include the capability to transmit still or slow-scan television images and video to schools from cameras attached to the lander monitoring the moon's surface, and perhaps the Earth in the background, which would be ideal stimuli for getting school kids and STEM organizations further interested in space. The proposal is on open access at the European Space Agency website and is now being evaluated. AMSAT DL's LUNART follows the Lunar Amateur Radio Interaction Experiment proposal from Andy Thomas, G0SFJ. Both refer to weak signal modes and suggest the same frequency bands. Thomas said he welcomes Lunart as a well-developed proposal and hopes the European Space Agency will support it as well. AMSAT Vice President of Engineering Jerry Buxton, N0JY, said that while it was disappointing that the amateur transponder on Husky Sat 1, also known as HO107, was not available any longer following the satellite science missions, the overall Husky Sat 1 project and mission were quite beneficial for our partner and for AMSAT. The linear transponder module on Husky Sat 1 was operational for more than three months, failing during or just after a period of full sun when transponder temperatures topped 176 degrees. Husky Sat 1 was the first CubeSat from the Husky Satellite Lab at the University of Washington and the first mission with AMSAT's linear transponder module on board. University researchers conducted their work using an FCC Part 5 experimental license. The Husky Sat 1 team was able to command their satellite and experiments and receive the telemetry they sought, and AMSAT was able to work through the extensive process of making a new design for a black box radio module that can be integrated into a non-AMSAT spacecraft and fly in the space environment, Buxton said in a recent post to the AMSAT BB reflector. While licensed and operated as an amateur radio satellite by AMSAT during the transponder use, some facts set HO-107 apart from our FOX-1 CubeSats and other AMSAT satellites, Buxton explained, pointing out that HuskySat-1 was not an AMSAT satellite. We have no control and may not have any insight into how a partner actually uses the LTM, he said. While we see the LTM temperatures and many of the other typical data fields that we downlink to FoxTelem regarding LTM health, data such as temperature of the host environment, as well as other specific information like power and the state of the other systems in a host satellite may or may not be available to us. Whether LTM is operated within design limits is entirely up to the host. 
Buxton said the Husky Sat team and AMSAT cooperated smoothly on the mission. He said the Husky Sat 1 team is processing and studying its data for use in their thesis and classes and preparing it for release in a specific way, typical of such an institution today, he said. AMSAT is generally more forthcoming with information about our missions, but what we can and have said about this mission is determined by the University of Washington. Buxton said the LTM concept is now becoming available for other non-AMSAT CubeSats to fly amateur radio on their mission. HO-107 is the pilot production of LTM and was developed in partnership with UW Husky Sat 1, Buxton explained. It was the first CubeSat radio module designed and built by AMSAT for use in other host CubeSats, and the University of Washington was key in working with us through the design and process, processes needed to provide such a module. They did not buy it as such, nor did we give it to them as an off-the-shelf product, as we plan to for future LTM production. LTM was developed from the Fox 1E linear transponder design. Overall, the Husky Sat 1 team was quite happy with the telemetry and command performance, even with the LTM anomaly showing up toward the end of their experiments, Buxton said. In the process of getting Husky Sat 1 to orbit, several students became interested in amateur radio, and we have already had preliminary discussions of future joint mission plans. There is no doubt that HO-107 was a success in many ways beyond the operational life of the transponder, Buxton added. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. Foundations of Amateur Radio The hobby of amateur radio is essentially one of experimentation. Within our community, we endlessly build things, from amplifiers to yagis and every letter of the alphabet in between. With every experiment, we grow the amateur radio sphere of influence just a little bit. As our hobby is evolving into software-defined radio, or SDR, the homebrew aspect of our community is also changing bit by bit, and as a result, homebrew today is just as likely to be based on software as it is in hardware. Unlike the physical world where you need to source and buy components, design a circuit, build it, test it, and then put it in a box, in the software realm, you can get started with a computer that is more than likely within reach right now. Recently, I took delivery of a new SDR, an ADALM Pluto. It's essentially a Linux computer, FPGA, and transmit-capable SDR in a small box. I bought it specifically for the purpose of experimentation. One of the first things I did with this device was install an existing piece of software called Dump 1090. The tool listens to 1090 MHz and decodes Mode S transponders, used by aviation to report aircraft information in real time. Originally written by Salvatore Sanfilippo in 2012 for the RTL-SDR dongle, it was patched by several people and in 2017 it was updated by Zhang Wei to support the Pluto SDR. My contribution to the project is minor. 
I've updated the onboard web server to use OpenStreetMap and a few other cosmetic changes. For me, it was a Hello World project, something that's the software equivalent of warming up your soldering iron and pre-tinning the wire you're about to use. The tools to do this is what I want to discuss. When you look at the software that underlies much of the SDR world, the digital modes, logging, contesting, even the software inside tools like the Nano VNA, much of it is open source. That means that as a curious amateur, you can have access to the underlying equivalent of the circuit diagram. As you can with a soldering iron, a scribe and wire, you can patch or update a circuit. In the software realm, you can do the same once you have access to the source code. The tools you're going to get in touch with are text editors, compilers, libraries, and configuration files. If that's not your thing, I appreciate that. But if it sparks your interest, you'll open the door into a brand new world of software development, where you can determine how a mode works, or what it supports, or how it interacts with your radio or testing gear. When you jump in, likely feet first, you're going to make mistakes and lose hair and sleep, and you'll be shaking your virtual or physical fist at the person who came before you. But then that's the world of experimentation, so likely you'll already have that down pat. You'll likely play with different tools that require different versions, often installed side by side, much to your chagrin when you learn that it just won't work. Not to mention that removal of the offending tool often leaves interfering cruft behind, not unlike unsightly and short-circuiting blobs of solder. I'm here to introduce you, albeit briefly, to a tool that will take much of that pain away. The free tool is called Docker. It has got little in the way of visibility in the amateur radio world, but in the software development world it's pretty much old hat. Essentially, the idea is that you can install stuff into a so-called disposable container. So you can have your copy of Dump 1090 installed in one container, and your copy of Codec 2 in another. A copy of RTL-SDR in a third container, all working independently from each other, without needing to complicate things with multiple computers or virtual machines. If a developer uses Debian, another uses Ubuntu, and a third uses Red Hat, you can run these side by side without any issue. If they need an ancient version of something, that too is handled without a problem. Make a mistake, destroy the container, and start again, fresh. Docker is a tool that allows you to build an environment on Linux, macOS, and Windows, as well as the Raspberry Pi, that acts and behaves in many ways like a virtual machine. In all the ways that you're likely to use it, at least initially, it's indistinguishable. What that means is that the operating system, the compiler, and the libraries that you need for one tool won't affect those needed for another tool. The best part of this is that you can build on a massive library of pre-existing Docker containers and use files that describe how to build and compile tools like Dump1090. If you look for my callsign VK6FLAB on github.com, you'll find my version of Dump1090 and you'll find a Docker file that describes how I built it. The project contains all the bits you'll need to get started with your own version of Dump 1090, or some other project that tickles your fancy. Every time you build something, the amateur radio sphere of influence grows just that little bit. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. 
Every year, professional and amateur tower climbers fall to their deaths. In most cases, these accidents were avoidable. Not too long ago, people in my community were shocked when a commercial tower climber fell to his death. According to our local paper, Jerry Trammell, 29 years old, not an amateur, of southern Indiana, fell from an older-style microwave reflector tower where he was working with another climber. They were painting the tower. There is no way to prevent all accidents. That's why they call them accidents. As a tower climber, we can reduce them by following some simple safety guidelines. No matter if you're climbing up or down, a simple climbing procedure can dramatically reduce the risk of falling. The cost for this added safety is a slower rate of climb. First off, use the proper commercial climbing belt and attachment gear. Secondly, always wear a commercial climbing shoulder harness. Join the harness to your belt. And lastly, use a similar strap from your harness and attach it to the tower, but always to a different placement on the tower from your belt. This way, no matter which one fails, the other one is more than strong enough to hold your weight and that of your gear and cargo. With a dual strap attachment, you can climb up or down with two straps and always be attached to the tower. Using this method, the only thing that can injure you is a total failure of the tower or a near-direct lightning strike. This may slow your vertical movement, but ask yourself this question. If I misplace a clamp, can I flap my arms fast enough to slow my fall to a safe speed? Let's review this simple procedure one more time. You will use two climbing straps to attach to the tower. Always clamp these two straps to different places on the tower, never to the same tower part. From a standstill, unhook one strap and step up one or two rungs until the other strap is around your knees. Then clamp the first strap as high as you can reach. Now, reach down and unhook the lower strap. Step up until the now higher strap is about knee height and reach up and clamp on with the loose one. By using shoulder harness and waist belts and using this method, you will always be connected to the tower while climbing. Remember to follow the dual attachment safety rule while clamped onto the tower when you intend to let go of the tower and lean fully into your belt. Always clamp onto two different places. When using duplicate strap attachments, you effectively reduce the chances of a fatal fall by nearly half. That's a cheap and cost-effective insurance policy you can write for yourself. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Amateur radio operators will be paying tribute on HF as well as satellite in honor of the soldiers who made history when they joined the United States Army in Texas following the end of the American Civil War. Members of the six regiments of Buffalo Soldiers, as they came to be known, were black Americans whose military service was authorized by Congress on July 28, 1866, creating two units for cavalry and four for infantry. 
Using the call signs W5W and W5B, hams in Texas will operate in the Worldwide Special Event on July 25th and 26th. Commemorative QSL cards and certificates will be made available. Shortwave listeners are also being invited to take part in the event, which will also be made available for listening live on Facebook on Saturday, July 25th at 1 p.m. Central Time. Look for the live stream on Facebook on the page called Buffalo Soldiers Program, Texas Parks and Wildlife. Texas Parks officials are devoting the month of July to celebration of the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers who served in the American West. The Reverse Beacon Network will gain 15 new nodes thanks to the Yasme Foundation. These new nodes will be added to regions where there's a need for reception reports to support amateur radio operation and to where those reports will also have scientific value for geophysical research. Yasme was assisted in this effort by supporting grants from Amateur Radio Digital Communications and by the scientific advice from AMSCI researchers. Node locations will be available after a final list of hosts is published. The Maritime Mobile Service Net on 14.300 MHz came to the assistance of a sailing vessel on June 25th. For more details on this amateur radio-assisted maritime rescue operation, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this special report. Net Control Operator Stephen Carpenter, K9UA, took a call on 20 meters from Ian Cummings, KB4SG, the skipper of the Mystic Lady, some 40 miles east of Florida. Cummings reported that his engine had failed as he was attempting to return to his home port of Stewart, Florida. He not only had insufficient wind, but a strong current was carrying his vessel further out to sea. Cummings had been unable to reach any station via his VHF marine radio since he was too far from the coast. Assisting in the call was Robert Winhoff, K5HUT, also a net control operator. Cummings said his vessel, with one passenger on board, was drifting northwest toward the South Carolina coast. Carpenter contacted Cummings' family, who had already called the Seato Marine Towing Service. Seato advised Carpenter to tell the captain to head closer to shore by sailing west, if possible. Carpenter told Cummings that if he was unable to get nearer to shore, he would notify the U.S. Coast Guard, which was already monitoring the situation. The Mystic Lady was able to make some headway, but it was very slow. Members of the net made additional calls via landline to the captain's family to keep them up to date on the situation. The family was concerned, but relieved the communication was established and that all was well. Several hours later, the captain advised that the wind had picked up, allowing him to head close enough to shore for Seato to reach the vessel and take it back to port. A major concern during the rescue operation was that the vessel was heading directly towards a lee shore the net reported. Lee shores are shallow, dangerous areas which are a hazard to watercraft. Vessels could be pushed into the shallow area by the wind, possibly running aground and breaking up. The Pacific Seafarers Net, which monitors 14.300 MHz from the West Coast after the Maritime Mobile Service Net secures at 0200 UTC, kept in touch with the Mystic Lady into the night while it was under tow. The tired, grateful captain later messaged the net, A million thanks to everyone last night who helped rescue us on 14.300. Everyone shipped in as we drifted north in the Gulf Stream, 60 miles headed to a lee shore. 
The Maritime Mobile Service Net Control and several others stayed with us for hours, phoned people, and were immensely helpful. The situation on board was dangerous. We are now safely under tow home. You folks are amazing. In operation since 1968, the Maritime Mobile Service Net monitors 14.300 MHz 70 hours a week to assist vessels and others in need of assistance. Scientists associated with the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the University of Maryland, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and other institutions are offering a bold prediction on how Solar Cycle 25 will play out. In a paper entitled Overlapping Magnetic Activity Cycles and the Sunspot Number, forecasting Sunspot Cycle 25 amplitude, they assert that the next sunspot cycle will be of a major proportion. The forecast stands in stark contrast to the consensus of forecasters who predict that the magnitude of the nascent cycle 25 may not be much different from the current unremarkable solar cycle, which appears to have reached its low point. From the dawn of modern observational astronomy, sunspots have presented a challenge to understanding. Their quasi-periodic variation in number, first noted 160 years ago, stimulates community-wide interest to this day. A large number of techniques are able to explain the temporal landmarks, geometric shape, and amplitude of sunspot cycles. However, forecasting these features accurately in advance remains elusive. The paper notes that recent studies have illustrated a relationship between the sun's 22-year hail magnetic cycle and the production of sunspot cycle landmarks and patterns, but not the amplitude of the cycle. Using discrete Hilbert transforms on 270 years of monthly sunspot numbers to robustly identify the so-called termination events, landmarks marking the start and end of sunspot and magnetic activity cycles, we can extract a relationship between the temporal spacing of terminators and the magnitude of sunspot cycles, the abstract explains. Given this relationship and our prediction of terminator events in 2020, we deduce that the sunspot cycle 25 will have a magnitude that rivals the top few since records began. This outcome would be in stark contrast to the community consensus estimate of sunspot cycle 25's magnitude. According to the paper, low-amplitude solar cycles appear to correspond with widely separated terminators, while larger-amplitude cycles correspond to more narrowly separated terminators. Our best estimate for the sunspot number amplitude of solar cycle 25 is 233 spots, with a 68% confidence that the amplitude will fall between 204 and 254 spots, the paper posits. We predict with 95% confidence that the cycle 25 amplitude will fall between 153 and 305 spots. The researchers concede that their forecast is outside of the scientific consensus based on different paradigms. Over the coming months, as solar cycle 25 matures, it will become evident which of these paradigms is most relevant, the paper says. Very early indications of the spot patterns are appearing at higher than average latitudes. Historically, high latitude spot emergence has been associated with the development of large amplitude sunspot cycles. Only time will tell. If you are on the HFCW bands, you may hear a brand new call sign. K2LCW was granted recently to the Kids Long Island CW Club. 
The club's young members have been learning Morse code from the Long Island CW Club in New York, an especially welcome activity during the long quarantine. The Long Island CW Club, also known as W2LCW, is the proud sponsor. And according to instructor Rob K2MZ, they are now in search of a suitable logo for the new kids' club. According to the Long Island CW Club website, since their launch earlier this year, the kids' classes have attracted students from 31 U.S. states and four countries. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. And finally this week, last year was one of both celebration and uncertainty for WWV, the station adjacent to Fort Collins, Colorado, that transmits automated time broadcasts on the shortwave bands. On the plus side, it marked the 100th year of WWV's call letters, making the site, operated by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, one of the world's oldest continually operating radio stations. On the negative side, WWV and its sister time station, WWVH in Hawaii, nearly missed this centennial. That's because NIST's original 2019 budget called for shutting down the pair, along with WWVB, the long-wave code station co-located next to WWV as a cost-saving move. Fortunately, these cuts never happened, and WWV, WWVH and WWVB seem likely to keep broadcasting the most accurate time from NIST's atomic clocks, at least for the immediate future. That's good news for the station's many supporters who say that time broadcasts still matter in the Internet age. Today, listeners around the world can get the most accurate time possible via WWV and WWVH's broadcasts on the shortwave bands. To make this happen, WWV broadcasts continuously on six shortwave frequencies 2.5, 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25 megahertz, said Glenn Nelson, an electronics technician at WWV and WWVB. WWV has 11 operational HF transmitters, including standby equipment, eight transmitting antenna towers, and associated time and frequency distribution equipment. Located on the southwest portion of Kauai, WWEH broadcasts 5 kilowatts on 2.5 megahertz and 10 kilowatts on 5.0, 10.0, and 15.0 megahertz, said WWVH station engineer Dean Okayama. The time frequency systems and transmitters are similar to WWV. Both stations are known for the automated voices that tell the current time. WWV uses a male voice, while WWVH uses a female one, both timed to speak one after the other whenever both stations are heard on their shared channels. This NIST service 
also broadcasts standard time intervals, standard frequencies, and other information, including solar conditions affecting radio propagation. Both stations report the time using the Coordinated Universal Time Zone, also known as Greenwich Mean Time, which is five hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. In the early days of radio, WWV, WWVH's standard frequencies were used by commercial broadcasters to calibrate their transmitters to their assigned frequencies. In the 1930s, WWV began broadcast standard time interval pulses, said Nelson. In the 1940s, the U.S. Navy granted WWV permission to broadcast time-of-day announcements. This had been the exclusive responsibility of the Naval Observatory up until then. Voice announcements of time were added in the 1950s, and a digital time code was added in 1960. In the 70s, the WWV audio signal was made available by telephone at 303-499-7111, and this service has continued to the present day. The possible closing of WWV, WWVH, and WWVB did not pass unnoticed. Tens of thousands of supporters signed petitions opposing the move for a variety of reasons. Even today, WWV and WWVH's standard time broadcasts and frequencies are a great help for engineers calibrating equipment. While time-of-day information can nowadays be obtained through the Internet, the combination of circuits involved in Internet distribution can result in delays, said Dr. Kim Andrew Elliott, retired Voice of America broadcaster and audience research analyst and now producer of the experimental broadcast Shortwave Radiogram. These delays usually involve fractions of seconds, but that is enough to be significant in certain endeavors, such as high-speed trading. For a lack of delay, nothing beats terrestrial radio. It is held back only by that pesky speed of light. WWV, WWVH's audio tones are also precise and thus useful. On WWV, the 440 Hz tone the musical note A above middle C is broadcast once each hour during minute two on WWV and minute one on WWVH, Elliot said. You can tune your violin using WWV. On a more scientific note, these reliable signals play an important role in forecasting space weather, which can have a serious impact on the world economy whenever it gets stormy. As WWV's signals move from their transmitter site in Fort Collins to shortwave receivers, they pass through the ionosphere and undergo slight delay and frequency changes, said Dr. Philip Erickson of the MIT Haystack Observatory's Atmospheric and Geospace Sciences Group. These changes, if measured carefully, obtain much information on waves, density changes, and other phenomena that form space weather known to affect national telecommunications, long-distance power grids, and human spaceflight. Initially, these changes could only be detected using professional-grade receivers, but times have changed. Atomic clock signal accuracy at the Colorado and Hawaii transmission sites means that modest receivers using inexpensive modern technology 
can use these time signals as beacons to sense ionospherically induced changes, Erickson said. This allows the formation of a distributed space weather network in the backyards of thousands of amateur radio enthusiasts across the continental United States. Such a concept is being realized now by the Ham Radio Science Citizen Initiative, which is developing a personal space weather station for use by citizen scientists. These benefits would come to an end should NIST's time stations ever go dark. The ideas I've outlined, plus other similar concepts, naturally extend WWV's 100-year historic mission into the 21st century and form an important part of national infrastructure in both the professional and emerging citizen science field, said Erickson. It is vital that these signals continue to operate for the benefit of advancing human understanding of our near-Earth space environment. It's not just WWV and WWVH that would be missed. The general public will take notice if WWVB shuts down as its 60 kilohertz signal controls self-setting clocks known as atomic clocks, said Thomas Witherspoon, editor of the shortwave radio website, the SWLing Post. Many don't realize it, but a large portion of wall clocks, alarm clocks, and watches not to mention weather stations, cameras, and potentially a number of other devices have a built-in receiver that self-calibrates, he said. NIST notes that there are more than 50 million radio control clocks in operation and another few million wristwatches that rely on WWVB for self-calibration. The thing is, these devices are so embedded in our lives here in North America, we scarcely notice them and many consumers likely assume they're set by the Internet. They are not. WWV and its sister stations could also have relevance now for another reason. The Internet has become infamous as a purveyor of false information and counterfeit sites, said Kim Andrew Elliott. This is true even during emergencies, including the current coronavirus outbreak. WWV and WWVH can be useful transmitters of emergency information. They are much more difficult to spoof than a website, he said. If a fake station tries to transmit on WWV, WWVH frequencies, co-channel with WWV and WWVH, the listener will hear immediately that something is not right. If the fake station comes from overseas, it will usually sound distant compared to the signal we are used to hearing in North America. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's capital region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates, Incorporated. Now, for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.